Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, producer David Davis and I highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley with a new recreation map you'll hear about later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department reminds Oregonians to enjoy the outdoors this summer. Seek uncrowded areas, know your limits, and don't just be careful, be insanely careful with campfires or any flames. That's pretty important advice. Indeed it is. Okay, in this podcast, this is one we've wanted to do for a pretty long time. So in this episode, we are talking about one of the most beautiful places to hike on the coast. The governor who saved Oregon's beaches and, wait for it, a legend of buried pirate gold on a mountain named for the gods. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, David, today we are talking about a truly iconic place and person, Oswald West, the state park, and Oswald West, the 14th governor of Oregon. Now, the state park features three of the most beautiful hikes in Oregon, huge mountains, ancient forests, a cliff-walled beach beloved by surfers. The park is named for Oswald West, the man, who passed a law so monumental that it's difficult to imagine Oregon without it. And that was the law that protected and made public the length of Oregon's coastal beach by turning it into a state highway. In a lot of ways, Oz West put Oregon on the path to becoming the state we know today that really values its scenery and public access. So obviously that's a pretty good start, but there's a lot of wild history here. One of the more notorious Oregon legends holds that Spanish gold is buried somewhere on the slopes of Neocony Mountain within this very state park. It's a story that's inspired everything from ill-fated treasure seekers to a feisty 2006 movie called Tillamook Treasure. Yeah, I mean, we've joked about it being pretty hard to do a podcast about Oswald West because there's just so much going on here. The, the important history of the beach legislation, the really fun, interesting stories about, you know, pirates, along with it just being a really amazing place. So we're going to do our best. And today, as we always do, we're going to blend that recreation, that history, and a little bit of news to give you a snapshot of this beloved park, which is tucked just north of Manzanita and south of Cannon Beach. We're going to break down three of the most iconic spots of Oswald West. It's not one of the largest state parks, and it's almost entirely geared towards hiking. But the trails it does have are some of the best, including Short Sand Beach, Neocony Mountain, and Cape Falcon. So we're going to focus on each of those trails, what makes them special, while also highlighting that unique history or quirks of each one. And in the middle, for our kind of history segment, we've got a great interview with Jim Moore, a professor at Pacific University, about the critical role Oswald West, the governor, played in shaping Oregon's outdoors and identity. All right, let's dive into it. Okay, we're going to talk base camps and the best time of year to visit, but I do want to start with a quick warning. Now, it's partly the pandemic, it's partly the summer's heat wave, and it's partly just the direction things are going on the northern Oregon coast, but Oswald West has seen an extreme number of people visiting this summer, particularly Short Sand Beach. 
We're going to touch on each place and how to recreate there responsibly. But in general, if you're visiting on a nice summer day, you better get to these trailheads early. For good experience here, it's critical to have a game plan, especially in the summer. Okay, well, given that challenge, let's talk about the area and potential base camps. I think it's helpful to look at this area as kind of three locations. Oswald West State Park, the town of Manzanita, and then Nehalem Bay State Park. They're kind of stacked right along each other. Um, along the coast, and each kind of brings something different to the table. Yeah, for sure. So Manzanita is a really charming town just a few minutes down the road, like literally a few minutes down the road. And a quick side note, the town was actually hit hard by a super rare Oregon Coast tornado in 2016, if, if you remember a few years ago. The tornado only lasted two minutes officially, but it did $1 million worth of damage. The town doesn't feel destroyed or anything now, and again, it's one of my favorite little towns on the Oregon coast, but, you know, just one of those quirky things in that area. You never see tornadoes on the coast. No, a little bit of recent history there. Yeah. Nehalem Bay is just down the road, and the big upside there is that there's a pretty large campground that includes 18 yurts. I don't know if that's a record for the state parks, but that is a lot of yurts in one place. And so it makes it a little bit easier to snag one. I was lucky to do that. So I think these three places kind of work well together. You can get a vacation rental in Manzanita and kind of have those touches of civilization. Uh, you can get a campsite or a yurt at Nahalem Bay. And so you have that base camp to hit Oswald West earlier, often, and when it's not as crowded. Just makes it for a better experience out there. So what's your season of choice here? Well, my favorite time to visit the northern Oregon coast generally is September and October. The weather is still really nice, but with school starting, the crowds thin out, especially midweek, but also on the weekends to an extent. So, yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, that combination of slightly off season, midweek and then early morning, you know, that's the gold standard. And I still think there's also opportunities like deep into winter where there'll be some really sunny winter days where you don't see any precipitation. Those make for great sort of, you know, get out of the bleak valley for a little while, get some sun on the coast. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. The park manager mentioned that it can get muddy out there, especially on Cape Falcon Trail. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I love going to the coast in the dead of winter, you know, catching one of those like rare, nice days. I think that's that's the best. All right, so let's jump into the cool places and trails at Oswald West State Park. I think it makes a little sense to start with kind of the granddaddy of them all, Niakani Mountain. The name comes from the Tillamook tribe that lived in the area and translated roughly means place of the supreme deity or place of the god. It's also the mountain with the fabled treasure. So there's kind of a lot going on here. So where should we start? Well, let's start with the hike itself, like the nuts and bolts. So right now the north part of the trail is actually closed. Hopefully it reopens soon. But you can still climb to the summit on two different options that are longer or shorter. For the longer option, you can actually begin in Manzanita and follow a brand new section of the Oregon Coast Trail recently completed by the Trail Keepers of Oregon for 1.8 miles and about 800 feet of climb to the South Niakani Trailhead. For the shorter and more family-friendly option, you can actually drive to that same point, and then from that trailhead, it's another 1.5 miles and 800 feet to the summit, which is breathtaking. I mean, the top up there takes in views that stretch 30 to 40 miles down the coast, down this beautiful crescent beach. You really feel like you're on top of the world up there. 
All told, the shorter option is three miles round trip, and the longer option is around six to seven miles, kind of depending on where you start in Manzanita. A lot of people like to start at the beach where you can look up at the mountain and kind of think to yourself, hey, I'm going to be at the top pretty soon. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those uh, sort of summits and viewpoints when you get there. It is one of the just defining Oregon places that like sticks in your mind. It really is. And I should mention, you know, the trail goes up right next to the top. But if you want to get up to the true summit, you kind of do a little scramble uh, up some rocks. Not everybody does it, but I did it with my four-year-old. So it's just kind of a quick little scramble. And the view from that top, oh, man, it's like you're saying. It's one of those just amazing viewpoints. Like every time I see a picture of it, I'm like, I know exactly where that is. Yeah. So any other highlights from the hike you want to point out? Well, I did this with my two daughters uh, when they were young. And one of the ways I used to keep them interested was by making up a song based on what we were seeing. So on this hike, you get pretty good views of the Nehalem River and Bay below. And my four-year-old at the time was very excited that Nehalem and Salem rhymed. So we made up this song. Are you ready, David? There's not a lot of opportunities to give you to sing on the <laughs> podcast, so I welcome it. Go for it. All right, it. here it is. Oh, Salem, Nehalem, Salem, Nehalem. One is home to the fishes in the sea. The other is home to you and to me. Oh, Salem, Nehalem, Salem, Nehalem. Yeah, that's it. That's the song. What do you think? Uh, I hope we still have some listeners at this point <laughs> in the podcast, but that was pretty catchy. I appreciated it. Um so, obviously, I mean, we're doing this hike on Neocani Mountain, so could you have mixed in some of the legend of the gold here? Or what? Well, they were pretty young at the time, and there are some sort of adult themes to this story. So, But since you brought it up, let's, let's tackle that. Let's get into this, because this is really one of my favorite histories in all of Oregon. So here's basically the legend says that in the 16th century, a group of either Spanish sailors or possibly pirates made landfall here. They carried a chest of gold up this very mountain. I guess it's a good landmark that you could see from the ocean. Anyway, and they bury the gold and then murder a man who is with them. Some of the tellings say it was an African slave, and they toss the body onto the treasure before burying it. The idea here was that local Native Americans wouldn't disturb the treasure if it was a grave and there was a dead body there. So, look, all I'm saying is that Probably not singing that song to my two and four year olds uh, to keep them hiking. That might give them some pretty bad nightmares. That seems like a story for kids when they reach kind of like the Goonies age. And speaking of which, I don't have any evidence for this, but the whole one eyed Willie myth from Goonies has to be related to this, right? Like buried treasure and treachery on the Oregon coast. Like that can't be a coincidence. I'm sure they drew pretty heavily from from this particular legend. It's been around for quite a while. And, I mean, really, it goes uh, apparently all the way back to, like, the Hudson's Bay Company era. And to its credit, there have been artifacts possibly of Spanish origin found on the mountain. And if you want to take a really deep dive into the subject, there's a lot of history suggesting that uh, Spanish sailors did land here and maybe even nearby in Short Sand Beach, which we'll talk a little bit later. But no actual treasure has been found on the mountain. And it's honestly not for lack of trying. (laughs) When a legend goes back that far, I mean, people are going to – there's a select – part of the population that's really going to buy into that. And that is definitely what happened here. At least two treasure hunters died in the 1930s when a hole they were digging caved in on them. I think my favorite thing is that this legend held sway all the way into the 1960s and 70s. A guy from Salem named 
Tony Marino actually brought heavy equipment out onto the mountain to dig for treasure in 1968, and he kept at it for a while. But alas, no treasure was found, and according to an old newspaper story, Moreno called it quits, to quote the story, after failing to crack an underground treasure vault. <laughs> that's some high expectations. I mean, that's... It would be super cool if it happened, though. Like, how cool would it be if you, like, found this old buried treasure? Like, that never happens. No. And speaking of movies, while Goonies is obviously the best-known treasure-seeking caper set on the Oregon coast, there's actually a movie specifically about this legend set in Manzanita and filmed on the Oregon coast that came out in 2007. It was a made-for-TV movie called Tillamook Treasure. And here's a little audio from the trailer. My people were hunting on the slopes of Neocani Mountain when they saw a strange craft coming. White men carried a large chest up the mountain. They dug a deep hole and put the treasure chest into it and disappeared forever. Hundreds of treasure hunters look for the chest and all have failed because they were not the ones chosen. One who is brave enough not to be afraid of the ghost of the slave. So I don't know that I would necessarily uh, recommend people seek that out, but if you happen upon it, you know, maybe it's a good uh, hour and plus of uh, entertainment. I mean, it's just alone for like seeing the Oregon landmarks like on the big screen. Like that's kind of cool. Like they obviously filmed at the beach in Manzanita looking up at Neocani Mountain. So they're on site and it's just kind of fun to see those places. So you can you can look at the coast and hopefully ignore the bad acting according to the reviews. I don't know. That's just what I've read. I haven't seen it. That's harsh. Uh, all right, so we've covered the nearby base camps and the hike up Neocani Mountain. Is there anything else you want to highlight in Manzanita and Nahalem Bay or the Manzanita side of things? Sure. Well, one thing I'd note is that the beach, like I just talked about, in Manzanita and then down to Nahalem Bay, it's really scenic in itself. Uh, Neocani rises right over the top. It's really beautiful. So if it's a busy afternoon and you don't want to you know, be hiking shoulder to shoulder on the trails there, it makes a great place to just have a beach hike. And there are some less used trails at Nahalem Bay that you can turn into a pretty nice loop. You know, that's a pretty good time. Also, for some more diverse adventures, if you want to try something other than hiking, there's some commercial outfitters that do horseback rides on the beach and then another one that does kayak tours in the Halem Bay. I know that's not really our focus, but, you know, if you're looking for a way to kind of round out a trip and add that little diversity, those are two good options. If you go to the Halem Bay website, they have a phone number for those two outfitters. So I remember you writing a while back about kayaking on the Nahalem River. Have you ever gone horseback riding on the beach? Apparently that's a super Oregonian thing to do. I've not. I mean, I'd love to do it. It's on the bucket list. And you write about it being a classic Oregon thing. I'm stealing from our interview that's coming up in a little bit, but it was actually on a horseback trip on the beach that Oswald West came up with his big idea for conserving the length of Oregon's beach. Speaking of Oswald West the man, we're going to go ahead and head into our first break to hear a message from our sponsor. When we return, we're going to hear the interview with Jim Moore on why the 14th governor was so important to Oregon's history. Later in the show, we're going to talk about Short Sand Beach, Cape Falcon, and some of the more rugged parts of the northern end of the park. It's all when we return. I'm Andy Geisler. I'm a forester at the American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Like you, I love the outdoors. On many days, the forest is my office. I work on the ground with public lands agencies on good forest management projects. Forest management helps achieve important conservation goals while providing sustainable timber. 
Science-based forestry helps improve wildlife habitat, outdoor recreation, clean air and water. And it's essential to providing renewable, climate-friendly wood products. Learn more about us at amforest.org. All right, welcome back. In Oregon, one of the things that defines us is our access to the beach on the Oregon coast. It's always open, it's always free, always public. The beach is kind of our birthright, and no other state can match us in that respect. In our history segment, we talk with political scientist Jim Moore about how exactly it all happened. All right, to take a deeper look at the man himself, former Governor Oswald West, we're joined by Jim Moore, Director of Political Outreach at the Tom McCall Center for Civic Engagement at Pacific University. Jim, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be with you. All right, to start, can you tell us about Oregon at the time Oswald West became governor in 1911? So a look at the moment indicates issues like women's suffrage, prohibition, uh, the state's roadway system were kind of the big issues at the time, but where was Oregon in its development? Well, it was at a really interesting time. Um, it was just becoming known. It became known kind of after 1900 and then developed that there'd been a huge amount of corruption in dealing with Oregon state lands. Um, when the federal government gave Oregon statehood, the federal government gave Oregon all over the state sections of land, those square mile parcels that are out there. And Oregon was basically supposed to use those to fund its public schools. In the 1880s and 1890s, uh, there was a huge corruption issue that went on. That land was either outright stolen or sold at really cheap rates to basically big timber owners. And all of this was coming out. It was an issue in the gubernatorial elections in the 1900s. It was an issue in the gubernatorial election when Oz West ran in, in 1910. And so people were thinking about the outdoors at that time as basically saying, oh my gosh, big corporations are stealing it from us. Oz West was kind of the guy who rode in literally sometimes on his horse and said, I'll go try to save your public lands for you. Well, what can you tell us about Oswald West, the man you, you, you know, painted that picture of him coming in on a, on a horse to kind of save public lands. But, you know, he was a longtime banker in Salem, but then also apparently went to Alaska to search for, for gold. He seems like kind of an interesting combination. So what was the guy himself like? Well, he was he was a bright. He was pretty good in school. Uh, he always thought that he might be interested in the law, um, but due to a variety of things, he started working for a bank. He, as he said, he loved to be outdoors. So when there were were errands to be run where you'd get on horseback and ride for bank business over the Cascades or someplace like that, he would absolutely do that. There was one remarkable ride where. He was uh, basically designated by the head of the bank to take $10,000 in cash and a couple of cashier's checks to the banker's daughter, who she and her husband had just moved to Astoria and were starting up a business. Um, and so he had, Oz West had this in his saddlebags, $5,000 <laughs> in each saddlebag to basically even them out. He rode horseback. He had a six shooter with him in case anybody did anything. He got there, and then the daughter said, you know, actually, we're doing pretty well. We don't need it. So Oz West, with all the money, then rode all the way back with his six-shooter and his horse. 
Um, so he was he was an adventurous guy. He thought he would go to Alaska and make a killing, uh, but there was a fight almost immediately with people next to who had the claim right next to him, and uh, they actually beat up all the people in Oz West Group. So he came back home from that, was thinking about his next adventures, and then in about the, the early 1900s, he knew the governor of Oregon, and the governor of Oregon said, I've got a job for you. And that job was to be the state land agent. Yeah, eventually he's appointed that that state and land agent, as you mentioned, and later the Oregon Railroad Commission. So what did he do in those roles? And do you have a good sense for how he thought about Oregon's outdoors and the environment, like kind of what his ethos was? Well, it, it's hard to figure out what he thought about the outdoors and the environment, but we know what that he really loved being a state land agent. We still have a land board today of the governor, the treasurer, and the secretary of state. That group hired him and said, we want you to clean up the corruption that we've discovered in all the sales of those land and all the stealing of that state land that happened. The estimate is he got back of the probably 1.8 million, maybe 1.5 million acres that had been stolen in effect, he got 700,000 acres of that back. The reason he didn't get more is the statute of limitations had run out on the thefts and the, and the illegal sales. Um, but he saw his role as protecting that land for the state of Oregon. You know, he loved to be outdoors. He loved to be out on his horse. He was a hiker. Uh, he loved the coast. He he personally loved all that kind of stuff, but I think his attitude was more, I need to get that land back for the state of Oregon so the state of Oregon can use it for what it was intended to, which is to pay for public schools. How did he actually go about doing that? Did he go out to the land and like chase the, the people off it? Or I mean, how in the world do you get back land that's been stolen? Well, one thing you do is you have a governor who says we need to activate state resources to look into this. The second thing is Oz West, during this entire time, was training himself in the law. So he's one of the first kind of legal activists who was also an outdoor activist, a lands activist. And so he combined that. Yes, he would get on his horse. He would ride out there. He would say, oh, I can see where the land is. I can see what it says on the documents. They don't match up. So here's what must have happened. Mm. But then also through Oz West, his own activities and the governor's investigations, they discovered things like the, the railroad barons and the timber barons actually had zinc forged documents to get control of the land. And they actually had stolen from the secretary of state, the official state seal and made a forgery of that as well. He, he was this person who was in the middle of legal investigations, ground truthing, going out and see what had actually happened with the land, where the land actually was, and then a growing expertise in the law himself. Uh, his very first case as a lawyer was against one of these land people, uh, timber companies that had stolen land, and he won the case. That's one of the things he ran for governor on. He won his very first case as a lawyer. So it was just a really interesting mix. Okay, so he's elected uh, governor of Oregon in 1911, and I think it's fair to say that today he's probably best remembered for his actions in keeping Oregon's beaches public. So can you explain exactly what he did and how it had the effect of leading to Oregon's uniquely open beaches that we know and love today? So this occurs for a couple of reasons. First of all, he and his wife actually built a home just south of Cannon Beach. 
And so to get to Cannon Beach from Salem, uh, the roads were not very good to the coast. And when you got to Cannon Beach, you couldn't get to the house except on horseback. And sometimes you had to go along the beach um, because the roads were so bad to, to even, or the paths were so bad to get to his house. So he was very familiar with issues on the coast in terms of transportation. He was asked in 1958 how he came up with his brilliant idea. And his brilliant idea, which he basically got the legislature to pass in 1913, um, was that the beaches of Oregon would be a state highway. The people would own the beaches of Oregon. And he was asked in 1958, uh, so how did you figure that out? And so he wrote a postcard. Um, and the postcard reads, Dear Armstrong, the guy who asked him the question, this is my old saddle horse, Fred the Freak. I rode him in 1912 from Elk Creek down Cannon Beach and via Arch Cape over Neocony Mountain Mail Trail to Nehalem. This was when and where I caught my inspiration. Your friend, Oswald West. So clearly he's out there on his, his horse going over these horrible roads and it occurs to him, wow, look at that beach right over there. It could be a highway. And there were efforts at the time to privatize the beaches. People, uh, mainly not, not because they wanted vacation homes or anything, but uh, people wanted them, they wanted to blow up the rocks and things like that to use the rocks to make roads. And so he said, ah, we've got to keep this for the people of Oregon. It went right along with this, trying to save the forest lands and things like that from big corporations. And, and so there you go. When he put it that way, and he basically said, you're doing this to protect the land for the people of Oregon. It's a continuation of my fight against big corporations. The heavily Republican legislature voted for it overwhelmingly. And that's how Oregon beaches became part of the public wheel they're owned by the state of Oregon, and they were owned by the state highway department. It's a really novel idea, though. Is there record of anyone ever doing this in any other state? Like, I mean, I don't think it's natural to look at a beach and say, hey, I can make that a highway. Like, that takes a certain level of creative thinking. Had it ever been considered at any other states before? Did Was there any precedent for this? <clears throat> there was no precedent. Um, but at about the same time, you see this happening in Florida, not for public stuff, but this is the Daytona Speedway. This is, they, they raced on the beach. Mm. So, but in, especially in the West, Washington state had already lost their beaches to private ownership. And in California, there was, as continues today, a big, big fight over who owns the beaches and things like that. What, or, you know, California eventually went with the California Beach Commission. Uh, Washington State still has a hodgepodge of things like that. So in effect, Oregon was behind the times because it was so hard to get over the coast range to the beach. Once the railroads went in, then all of a sudden, Oregon's beachfront was something that people said, oh, I want to develop this. But until the railroads, you just couldn't get there. Gotcha. Do you think he could kind of see where it would eventually go if, if some action like this wasn't taken? Like, did he look at what was going on in Washington and California and say, you know, this is going to be an issue. I'm going to I'm going to try to jump on it first. Yeah, absolutely. He explicitly mentioned California. Mm. Uh, California um, it had been turning into a mess. And some of the same companies he'd been dealing with, the big timber companies, uh, wanted access to the, the beaches and things like that. And you think about why did they want that? It's because since there were no good roads, 
the way that you moved timber was you got it down to the ocean and you put it on ships and those ships then took it to market. Um, and so it was, it was access to the coast. Um, people were beginning to think with the automobile, wow, wouldn't it be great to have a north-south highway along the coast? It'd be so beautiful. That was just beginning to come into the way people were thinking. In some way, it's, I don't want to call it like a, a bait and switch, but, you know, it's not like people drive literally on the Oregon coast. Like it doesn't become like a major highway. They build 101 eventually. So this becomes more of a conservation thing. Did, did people realize that at the time? They did. And especially by the end of the 1920s. So basically about uh, probably 15 to 20 years later, people really saw it as a conservation thing. Um, they saw it as a recreation thing. In fact, in 1947, the state legislature changed the law so that the beaches were held by the Department of Highways, but they were held for recreation purposes instead of for highway purposes. So yeah, the change definitely began to happen. And think about the 1920s, A, the railroads go in so people can get over there and say, oh, wow, it's pretty over here. Um, but we're also beginning Highway 101 does go in. So there's more access. You don't have to use the beaches, as you said, you don't have to use the beaches for highways. People were saying, yeah, that, that's great, that that's pretty. That's great that, that we have access to that. Gotcha. So the process of keeping the Oregon Coast beaches public obviously didn't end with Oswald West. Later required legislation, the beach bill from Tom McCall in 1967. So can you talk about how McCall picked up on the legacy that West started and, and how those two kind of shaped uh, what we know and love today? The highway law from 1913 and then amended in 1947 said that you went up to the high tide line, but what do you do about what they call the dry sand part of the beach, where the high tide never goes, but it goes up to the sand dunes or whatever is up there. And in Cannon Beach in 1967, a hotel owner said, well, <clears throat> all the beach in front of my place is not only on my deed, but it's above the high tide line. And so he marked it off for exclusivity for the people in his hotel. That's what really got people going on the beach bill. And Tom McCall did an amazing uh, stunt. He got in a helicopter with people who were, as he called them, scientists, but basically surveyors. They flew in to the beaches and they put stakes in the sand and they measured the distance from the water to the high tide to the end of the beach. And they said, this is where the line ought to be. So it was an amazing thing that really got the beach bill through. Can you tease out just a little bit the kind of difference between uh, West's Highways Act and then what McCall did? Like how, how did those two things work hand in hand to create, I guess, what we know today? Yeah, so the Highway Act is the key because it puts the beaches into the public domain. They belong to us, the people, regardless of whether the highway department is mining them at some points or not, they belong to the people. McCall says, you've got to use some sort of common sense and science to define what a beach is. So the, the beach bill basically clarifies what that is. And it's seen as a step towards preserving natural resources for the people and their recreation, their enjoyment, and for the health of the community. And so it's that bigger meaning that McCall's beach bill takes on as compared to Oswald West, where it was really seen as 
let's preserve this from the rich corporations that want to come in and take it from us. So long term, how important to modern Oregon was Oswald West? Like, do you have a feel for what might have happened without him? Like if he was never governor, do you think Oregon's coast would be a fundamentally different place? Yeah, I think Oregon's coast would look much more like Washington's or California's. Um, much of the other things that he did uh, during his time, for instance, he he really pushed the, the state highway system. That would have happened no matter what, simply because automobiles were coming in. That would have just gone on. But the, the beaches as a public thing that's unique to Oz West, it's still unique to Oregon, basically in the world, in the way that we have it. Um, and so, yeah, our, our coast would look very different. It would be much like when you go to our states to the north and south and you can't quite get access to the beach, or when you get to the beach, you have to walk around stuff because it's private property. It would have been a hodgepodge. Well, this has just been a, a fascinating conversation um, about the, the legacy of Governor Oswald West. I really appreciate you taking some time. Uh, once again, this is Jim Moore, the Director of Political Outreach at the Tom McCall Center for Civic Engagement at Pacific University. Jim, thanks so much for, uh, for taking some time on this topic. Hey, you're welcome. Always fun to talk about Oz West and the Oregon coast. All right, we're going to go ahead and take another break. When we return, we're going to talk about the single most beautiful hike at Oswald West and the busiest spot. Our newest sponsor in the Explore Oregon podcast is Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean beach, ancient forests, and scenic rivers just a short drive from the Willamette Valley. To help visitors plan a trip, they recently launched a trails and recreation map where you can search up to 800 different hikes, boat ramps, or adventures near towns such as Rockaway Beach, Pacific City, and Tilma. My favorite thing about it is that you can find a ton of places you might have never heard of. In the next segment, we're going to talk about a place called Short Sand Beach, one of Oregon's most popular trails. If you get out there and it's totally packed, don't worry, just grab the trails and recreation map for a backup destination. You'll find trails like Old Growth Cedar Preserve or Nehalem South Jetty Trail just a short drive away. This is a great map that gives you more options for a trip. You can find it all online at tulmukcoast.com recreation hyphen map. Once again, tulmukcoast.com recreation hyphen map. All right, welcome back. Up next, we're going to talk about one of the most popular hikes in Oregon, Short Sand Beach. This is a beach beloved by surfers and bodyboarders because of its nice waves, but it's increasingly slammed by families traveling out from Portland. Yeah, I mean, look, there is good reason this hike is so beloved. This hike appeals to literally everyone. It has easy access right off Highway 101. It's easy and flat. It's a half mile through old growth rainforest to a stunning little pocket beach surrounded by cliffs. It's great, but yeah, it is crowded. And as I was looking at what's going on here, I'm afraid I have to call out everyone's favorite hiking website, alltrails.com. Now we preach on this podcast about doing your homework. And so that's a good thing, but it should not include just relying on all trails as your sole source of information. It can be kind of like the spark notes of hiking guides, sort of useful, but pretty shallow. And in this case, it says the trail is moderately trafficked, which might be true like in the middle of winter or on a super overcast drizzly day. But if it's a nice sunny day, you better be at this trailhead early to score just a parking spot and be prepared for plenty of friends. Also, if you park along Highway 101, because the parking lot is overflowed, there is a decent chance you will get a ticket from the Oregon State Police. So 
just fair warning, get there early. And if it's a nice day, there's going to be some crowds. That's just the way it is. Even so, there's a reason why it's so popular. It's an amazing hike where you can stop at the picnic area, have a lunch near the beach, have a really nice time. The kids run in the waves. You can watch the surfers doing their thing. There's actually, you know, an interesting little plaque above the beach commemorating a person that both Zach and I can appreciate. That's Matt Kramer. The plaque reads, The people of Oregon hereby express their gratitude to Matt Kramer of the Associated Press, whose clear and incisive newspaper articles were instrumental in gaining public support for the passing of the 1967 Beach Bill. Yeah, it's kind of weird to see this random little plaque above the beach, which is normally dedicated to a politician or a historical figure. But here it's it's dedicated to, you know, just a regular beat reporter. And Kramer was a guy who uh, covered the state capitol in Salem. And what happened was that Oregon's fabled beach bill was in trouble. So property owners had started putting up barricades to the beach, stopping people from visiting some of their favorite places, and throwing this whole idea of public beaches into jeopardy. And the beach bill, which was meant to keep things the way they were, keep them public, was stuck in a House subcommittee and in real danger of dying, just like so many other bills die every session by just not getting moved along fast enough. Tom McCall made plea after plea, but it fell on deaf ears until Kramer started reporting that the bill was stuck, that lawmakers who favored privatization of the beaches were about to win. Yeah, the story appeared in newspapers across the state and really galvanized public support for the beach bill, which eventually escaped committee and passed the state legislature, becoming honestly kind of the crown jewel in McCall's tenure as governor and one of the most beloved bills in state history. Yeah, it's hard to imagine... Oregon without the beach bill. All right, we're going to finish up here with a look at one of my favorite hikes at Oswald West overall, and then knock out a few shorter ones. So Zach, what tops the list for you? All right, so our favorite overall hike, if you're going to do it perfectly, would be arriving at Short Sand Beach Trailhead early. So you hike down to the beach and you enjoy it for a moment, and that's a pretty darn good start. But then you head north on Cape Falcon Trail. And what makes this number one for me is that it just tightrobes along the cliffs above the ocean. It offers stunning views of Niakani Mountain. It drops into old growth rainforest. It passes a small waterfall. All before you come to Cape Falcon itself, you know, where you follow this kind of unmarked trail out to these really sweeping views. Now, there's a northern trailhead for Cape Falcon. It's a little bit longer, but it also has kind of the fewest people on it among all the trails out there. I would note that the trail is pretty rugged. It can be overgrown. It can be muddy. There's roots everywhere. It's kind of hard to make a fast time going out there, but you don't need to make fast time because the trail's really scenic. You enjoy every step. And so Cape Falcon is kind of my favorite at Oswald West because it blends together all the really good stuff at this special state park. So any little historical nuggets to know that make this area famous? I know. We've had, we've had a pretty... Intense story. Solid, <laughs> solid lineup here. <laughs> About like each of these, each of these hikes having like a, a crazy backstory. Um, not in the same way, but one of my favorite Oregon historical novels does heavily feature Cape Falcon and Nia Connie, and that's the novel Trask by Don Barry. If you've never read it, I highly recommend it. It's just a really engrossing novel that makes you feel like you're doing something I've always wanted to do, and that's visiting the Oregon coast before it was heavily developed, when it was still this wild place populated by Native Americans and a handful of mountain men and missionaries. 
I won't give away the whole plot, but at least the first half focuses on a journey over Cape Falcon and Neocani into what's now known as the Tillamook area to meet a pretty well-known Native American chief named Kilchis. It's just great writing, great information, and it feels like you're in these places that you recognize, but in a totally different context. Speaking of which, the Oregon Coast Trail does run the length of Oswald West. Do people ever backpack it or do the entire thing? There's no longer really anywhere to camp on that segment of the trail. So most people who are doing the, you know, through hiking the Oregon Coast Trail tend to hike it through it in one day. Uh, It's about 13 miles. And then they'll stay just to the north or to the south of the park, depending on which direction they go. But, you know, if you want a longer one-way hike, doing the entire Oregon Coast Trail through here is pretty cool. You do have to look for trail closures right now. Um, There's a map at the state park website. Well, we've hit Neocani, we've hit Short Sand and Cape Falcon in in detail. Any final words on these hikes or any other hikes you want to mention? Well, I talked to the park ranger and asked him to kind of rank these in terms of how busy they get. And it was Short Sand Trailhead was number one by a long shot, uh, followed by Neocani and then the northern Cape Falcon Trailhead. Again, all of them get fairly busy in peak summer, but that's sort of a way to look at it. Hikes we didn't mention include a very short trail to Devil's Cauldron Overlook Trail, which uh, I've never done, but it it sounds fantastic. And then there's the nearby Elk Flats to Short Sand Beach Hike, which is uh, two or three miles out and back, all worth checking out. Uh, Again, just look at the state park map. It lays it out pretty well. Well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you like what you heard, check out our back catalog of what is now over 40 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesomejournal.com slash explore. You can also find us, again, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We once again would like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resource Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for our future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast, a great place to plan your outdoor adventure with the help of their new recreation map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly, leaving no trace, and avoiding the crowds this summer. All right. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.